Hello, friends, and happy Halloween and blessed Sawain. We're your hosts, Megan Shufoles and Shannon Soims. We are the Scorpio Sisters, and we are so excited to welcome you into the very first podcast from the Metaphysical Apothecary. I was raised by a historian. I am a trained historian myself, and I'm also a scholar of storytelling, English literature, and anything metaphysical. So I am extremely excited to be here to be sharing some of our knowledge with you. And my fellow Scorpio sister, Shannon. Hi, all. This is Shannon. I've been practicing witchcraft and studying witchery in general and magic for about 20 to 21 years now. I am a librarian and a deep diver of the mystical and the arcane, mainly because it fascinates me and it's dark and mysterious and taboo. Taboo is always fun. Oh, yeah. As, as human beings, we love anything that's taboo. We're fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. And more so as a, a Scorpio. Because we just want to know all the secrets. Exactly. Why is it forbidden? Why can't we understand it? Why can't we practice it? Why do we have to label it as different or bad? Because it's powerful. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons that we chose dark magic and black magic as the main subjects for this first podcast. Dark magic and black magic, when they're being discussed, usually conjure up images of pentacles drawn in blood on the ground, animal sacrifice, people gathered in the woods doing all sorts of violent and malevolent things to bring forth entities that are not of this world and are only here to do harm and damage. When Shannon and I were talking about what we wanted to do for this first episode, we decided why not just hit the taboo on the head right away? (laughs) Let's just plow right in there, right? Yeah, especially considering the fact that there's a whole bunch to unpack within all of these different subject matters that is, uh, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, somewhere along the line, someone decides to say, oh, there was witchcraft practice in this house. So you're automatically assuming the witchcraft was malicious and dark and black and that the dark and black was bad. Exactly. So it's not that dark and black can't be bad. It's that what we wanted to do with this is offer a new perspective and a new way to think about dark magic and black magic. And we're talking about them that way because they are two separate things. When we were talking about this and doing our research, we discovered that black and dark magic can definitely be two separate schools of working. When we were talking about our research that we had done, you came up with some pretty interesting thoughts and perspectives on black magic that I had not heard before. Research for black magic is there's a historical context that started out as misunderstanding from those on the outside, labeling it as dark and black and mostly black arts and the black magic. That was eventually adapted to mean those who practice for selfish or power-hungry reasons. Okay, so it started out as a general term. A lot of the times you hear people arguing about black magic and, you know, light magic and how magic is just magic because it's just energy. Right. And it's all about a witch's intentions, which is very Mm -hmm. true. It's about the practitioner's intentions more than anything else. Yes, that's what makes magic good or bad. Yeah, that's what causes the magic to do one or the other. Exactly. Black magic has been seen during the labeling of good and evil. Everything evil ends up being black or dressed in black or has some kind of connection to black. But you also have this sense of power that you're not allowed to touch because that taints you in some way, shape, or form. Okay. There's one particular article talking about black magic and white magic as anything below the frequency of earth plane is black magic. Anything above the plane is white magic. Okay. We are on the plane of existence that is earth. Okay. Anything that vibrates lower than the earth plane is black magic. Okay. And frequency above is white magic. So in the thought process of the the author of this article, they're talking about magic, magical energy as coming from different dimensions. So dimensions yeah. One and two are dark magic, and then anything four and above would be white magic. Yes. What did your research reveal about the frequency and how that can be used and the light spectrum? Black magic is the absorption of all light frequencies, okay. all electromagnetic frequencies. Since it absorbs it all, we can't pick out any one. 
Not with our eyes, anyway. Not with our eyes. White magic is the projection of all the colors and the light frequencies that we can perceive. Okay. So white magic really has to do with projection and reflection of something. Okay. Whereas the black magic is the bag of holding, as we termed it in our notes. Mm -hmm. You're reaching into something and using whatever you pull out to your intention, whatever your intention is, whatever your will is at that point in time. So the black, the blackness, the black neutral or color, however you want to term it, contains all of these all possible vibrations for us to choose from when we're casting a working. So we can dip yes. into that and separate the the exact vibration that we need because they're all there. They're all available. Yes. Okay. So how do you use white magic? How do you pull the vibration? You don't pull the vibration. You have to find it in yourself and reflect it. Project it. Okay. There's no pulling involved with white magic. You don't pull a reflection from a mirror. Okay. You just are reflected in the mirror. The mirror naturally acts as that material that reflects back at the world. You reflect confidence back at the world as long as you're vibrating at that frequency and you choose to vibrate at that frequency. Okay. That makes sense. Black magic is what you pull. Okay. That's what you pull up from the void. That's what you pull out of your bag of holding. When I use black magic, I pull up from it information, whether it's a request for information, as in I need new information because I'm bored. <laughs> I need new information about this subject because I'm curious. I need new information about this because of whatever reason comes to mind. Okay. I will reach into the void during a working, whether it's meditative working or a ritualized working, and pull up a frequency that will allow that information to come to me as I can perceive it. So that's where a lot of the informational downloads and personal gnosis come from when you're in the state to receive those things. For me, yes. Okay. That's definitely where it comes from. I intentionally work with black magic in order to receive and be given that information. Okay. So what are some of the ways that these two types of magic can be accessed? What kinds of tools do you use or could our audience use to develop a stronger connection with them? For black magic, anything that's black, black candle, a black mirror, obsidian, a black obsidian mirror, because you're t staring into something that is the void itself. Mm -hmm. A black bowl when you pour water into it, that'd be great because that's another ancient understanding of what the void is. Yep. A black pool of chaos of water. Mm -hmm. So if you can tap into black magic by using the black colors, that would be a great help in working with that particular energy source. Okay. White magic, you use white colors that will help you associate and correlate with the white energy, but also mirrors. Okay. Regular mirrors. Regular mirrors. So that way you can just sit in front of the mirror and decide what you want to project to the world. And mirror magic is so powerful in terms of projection. And usually mirrors are also associated with water magic. But water is in and of itself a reflective mirror. Water is uh, amazing because it's associated with both black magic and white magic. That's true. It's extremely versatile. Being a mm -hmm. water witch myself, I've generally only used water in black magic. But I might have to... Uh, might have to dip my toes, so to speak, into some white magic in the water world. I think air magic is a very similar quality as well, where it also can be associated with either blackness of the void of space. Right. You only see the results of air. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's related to black magic since you can't see the individual frequencies in the black magic void. Right. You can only see the results. But at the same time, Air is very weight-wise, very light, mm -hmm. and it does project a frequency that is cold because it's a cold wind. It's bringing you a cold wind. It's projecting the cold wind. It itself is not cold. It does not feel cold, but it projects that energy. Or it's warm wind because you happen to be in a tropical ocean setting. And it's projecting that warmth from the sun. Yeah. Magic with earth, that you could work with as well. Working with fire with black magic is a little harder. Yeah, thinking with earth in terms of dark magic, obviously you have the soil and the roots and that's where things grow down into and that's where they dig in and find their nourishment. 
but at the surface, it absorbs the light and it reflects it mm-hmm, yeah. in the form of in the form of living bodies and fruiting bodies and things with leaves and yeah. It's not even reflecting back all of it. White magic reflects all of the frequencies back. It's only reflecting the green frequencies or the frequencies of the flower. Corn and wheat will reflect back that yellow color. So it's limited. Mm-hmm. So it's really limited by what you can visualize and what you can associate and correlate with. Right. Exactly. Well, when you were talking about fire, as you said, it would be difficult to do black magic with fire. It would be interesting to combine black and white magic in terms of the flames in the darkness and casting the shadow and exploring the place where those two things cross. Mm -hmm. That would make a very powerful working that is not going to fight each other. Right, because it's a blending. So in terms of dark magic versus black magic, if we're separating them out, the difference between the two is that black magic, as Shannon laid out neatly for us, is mainly associated with light spectrum, whereas dark magic is mainly associated with the timing for when you're doing the workings. It's associated with things done in the dark, at night, in the shadows. So it doesn't necessarily have to be done at night, but historically, magic is very, very often done at night. We see this portrayed a lot in media. And part of the reason is certainly that we feel more magical at night. And I'll get to that in a moment. The more practical reason for it was secrecy. Either the working needed to be secret for it to be more powerful, or on a very, very practical level, witchcraft for much of human history was frowned upon, or it was viewed as something that was evil and outside the laws of nature and was actually very, very dangerous to practice, which I think everyone is fairly familiar with. Things like the burning times and the Inquisition, those dark periods in history when witches and witches alike were... Uh, tortured. The more esoteric reason why we are, so many of us are attracted to practicing magic in the dark is because it brings clarity. The witching hour is between about 2 a.m. and 4.30 a.m. Most of us aren't awake during that time. So between 2 a.m. and 4.30 a.m., if you've been up during that time recently, it is the darkest and quietest time of the night. It provides the backdrop to really hear your thoughts and express your intentions very clearly. It's also less likely that your workings are going to be interrupted if you're doing them at night when the rest of the world is asleep. So this makes building energy much easier, both in terms of being able to clearly channel the vibration that you're going for and having the safety and security of of knowing that your working is going to go smoothly and not be interrupted. The dark also allows us to more easily see celestial bodies. The moon is very, very special to many of us. Constellations, planet, even galaxies that we might want to reach out to in the dark. So creating the visual connection with these entities helps us to draw on their energy more easily. For instance, if you have a very close connection with the goddess, Venus is literally the brightest, it's the brightest entity in the sky during certain parts of the year. So connecting with her at night when she's bright and shining and you can see her and feel her light on your face would be transcendent, I think. I don't personally work with Venus, but anyone who works with Venus or Aphrodite energy might want to give that a try if you haven't already. Venus is a very important celestial body I can engage with. How does working with her at night, how does that affect your connection? In a way for self-love. Okay. So she's an ID that I go to to express and better value myself, my confidence, my body, in any way, shape, or form. Okay. For the starlight, the planet light, I am able to sit down and have a conversation with myself via the planet and terror energy and figure out, well, why was I not appreciating this aspect of myself? Why was I not loving this particular piece of myself? And better able to understand my astrological Venus as well by looking at her and following her across the sky whenever possible. That sounds very powerful. (laughs) As an archetypal divine energy, 
she is very powerful. She, as a star and as an energy, again, I Friday being the day associated with Venus, I associate with her that way. That doesn't mean everyone does. Right. Some people do associate with her as the goddess of love, and they're looking for romance. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so they they could probably do something very along the same lines or work with that a spell on a Friday when they're staring up at Venus during a Friday night. And well, and and that 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 brings us to a discussion about dark dark deities and deities that you might worship in the dark. Before I wouldn't have necessarily considered Aphrodite to be a dark goddess. But it seems by this definition, we could definitely place her in that category. You can only see the planet Venus at twilight, whether it's at the beginning twilight, the dawn twilight, the evening twilight, and all throughout the night. Okay. Otherwise, her light is outshined by the light of the sun. That works well as both literal and metaphorical, the only time you can see her, that she shines brightest in the dark. Usually right before the sun rises or right after the sun sets. Okay. That's why she was once upon a time called the evening star or the morning star. Right. Which is where the term Lucifer actually comes from. But that's a subject mm -hmm. for a different time. <laughs> we will talk about it. And makes me wonder just how gender fluid he is. I work with Lucifer fairly closely, so we can definitely talk about that in a future episode. But he, he also is a... Speaking of dark deities and, and dark goddesses specifically... In the dark is when we obviously feel closest to these these deities as well. I work with Hecate and Lilith, and they both dwell in the dark because, again, it's a time for clarity. The darkness is honest. If you feel something in the dark, if you hear something in the dark, you're not going to be fooled by your eyes. You're not going to be fooled by intuit and the truth about what you're experiencing. So when you work with a goddess like Hecate, for instance, not only is she the goddess of witches, the stability actually needed to stay on that path without getting distracted by things that are to the right or to the left. You have to keep focused on your path because in the dark, you could trip, you could fall. You have to keep your eye out for obstacles and be thinking about how am I going to overcome this obstacle? How am I going to keep moving forward on this path? So one of the big things that Hecate has has taught me. Now, she she is often depicted with a lantern, but at least with my relationship with her, whether or not she allows me to use that depends on the situation. <laughs> The other dark deity I work with a lot is Lilith, and many people know her as, in Christian and Jewish traditions, as Adam's first wife left Eden because she didn't like being subjugated. The idea that she was not allowed to be equal to her partner. Lilith, for me, explores many, many of the taboos that women kind of embody. We bleed. We're hairy. We get angry. Lilith embraces all of these things and says, this is a part of you. This is something you mm -hmm. have to, this is something that you just have to deal with. And you can either resist it and pretend it doesn't exist, or you can acknowledge it and embrace it and choose how how you react to it when it comes up for you. Okay, so dark magic and dark dark deities are also things that have been hidden or I would I would def I would say that's absolutely true. Lilith was literally demonized for wanting to be equal to her partner. Mm -hmm. And that's the story of a lot of other dark deities in general as well. We were just talking about Lucifer and how he was also literally demonized. He was a messenger of, of Venus, of the morning star, and he was turned into mm -hmm. the literal devil incarnate. <laughs> so when you work dark magic, it's also an ideal time for shadow work, for dipping inward to exploring these things about ourselves that we find taboo, that we find distasteful, that we've rejected. So it's it's sort of an uncovering of those things that are secret, that are hidden. Okay. So when we bring them to the surface, we can reintegrate them back into our consciousness. So we're sort of reaching into the dark. Carl Jung had this idea that we create a shadow self or, mm -hmm. where we kind of store all of our skeletons. It's this dark closet. And when we open that up and examine those, 
for me personally, that has to do with being a queer woman. So our dark energy and our dark uh, magic is coming from a place that we've put things in the dark because it's safer for those things to exist in the dark, have labeled this as bad, incorrect, abnormal in some way, shape or form. Exactly. And the energies that we're working with, whether they're the dark uh, goddesses that we both tend to work with, or the dark god energies that others can work with, and I do work with as well, Mm -hmm. they're there to try to pull that up out of the darkness of ourselves, of our shadows, in order for us to become whole and complete. Yes, absolutely. That's, That's definitely... One of the biggest aspects, I would say, of dark magic that so, so many of us work, work with. A lot of witches do shadow work and dark magic, especially during this time of year. After Sawain, we, we turn around and we go, okay, it's time to go rooting around in the closet. Let's see what we got. And we bring those things out into the light, light magic. Which if dark magic is magic that is done in the dark, light magic is done in the day or in the light on purpose to harness the light energy. I don't do a ton of light magic because the sun and I do not get along. (laughs) Unfortunately, the sun likes me a lot more than I like it. So I do work with it. Right, because you work with Apollo. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the ways that we can do light magic, right, is by harnessing the magical energy of the sun which is representative of warmth growth internal and external nourishment we feel most people at least feel comforted in the light in the sun you can see what is around you you're aware of all of those things the bright broad daylight things can't really hide in there okay since you know working in the dark is working with honesty is working in the light also a little bit of working with people's perceptions you know the energy is more perceptive up for interpretation whereas in the dark there's not a lot of interpretation to be had i think that's correct i think that Mm -hmm. the light is a good place to look around and go this is my perception this is my intention this is what i want to do and just as in white magic project that back out into the universe that makes sense right so, um, just as there are deities that we would work with most often in the dark, there are also deities that we would work with most often in the light. A lot of us like to work with fairy energy, and fairies love anything shiny. If you've ever encountered fey energy, if there is something shiny there, they will want it. So some of the ways we can harness light energy are through reflective items such as non-black mirrors, glossy metal, polished crystals. A lot of us love our crystals that reflect light and refract light, especially inside of them. Selenite's great for this. Kyanite, any more high vibration crystal. Tourmalated quartz where you've got all of those little planes inside that reflect all of the little rainbows prisms, anything that can kind of project a beam of light. So if you're working with light magic, surrounding yourself with light and with the color spectrum, if you can surround yourself with that, it should add strength to your work. I actually was, when I was doing research for this, I realized that I do not have any light deities on my pantheon. They're all dark deities or they're tricksters or they're associated with the moon. And the moon you associate with dark I do. Magic. I do. You can see the moon during the day sometimes, but it's as you were talking Mm -hmm. about with Aphrodite and Venus, I see the moon at night. It's the largest, it's the clearest. She's kind of got her best face on. During the day, she feels kind of like I do early in the morning, where it's like you kind of have your eyes half open and your, your power is not quite at its peak yet. One of the other categories of magic associated often with dark and black magic are hexes, curses, and vanishings, right? Leading off of, you know, gaining that protection from dark magic and black magic, because they're very, very good for that. And also in terms of ancestor magic, your ancestors protecting you from things that might go wrong. Some of the things people associate with magic that might go wrong are hexes, 
curses, and vanishings. And these are very oh. controversial in the magical community. Yes. Should you do it? Shouldn't you do it? Uh-huh. Are you a bad person for working it? Are you a... Uh... Or is it sometimes necessary? Are there sometimes ethical reasons why you might need need to do these things? Not not necessarily want to do them, but necessary. Banishings are pretty self-explanatory. Uh, yes. The, you, you do explain it very well. Thank you. Um, it's kind of like a magical restraining order. So you're keeping someone away from you and your loved ones, like that Tupac quote where he says, I want you to eat, just not at my table. So you're essentially just pushing the person out of your sphere of influence. They're toxic or they're dangerous and you just need them to be out of your life or out of your family's life. I have definitely done banishings. Um, I I did mm-hmm. for, for people who were doing damage to our families. I don't yes. know who you've done banishings on. Uh, I've done a banishing on that girlfriend that was attempting to manipulate my brother into a long-term relationship. I've right. done a banishing on my mother's boss, who was a very toxic person, and she was toxic to herself. So part of my banishing was, please, find something that makes you happy while and you I do think it. That's, that's a key part of banishings, too, right? In, in many yeah. cases, it's the intention of, you know, I just want you out. And hopefully when you're away from my influence, you find a way to heal yourself or you find the lifestyle that works for you and makes you a less toxic person. Yeah. A lot of the workings that I've done for me personally, and it's, it's very much like, well, I hope you getting a better position on the other side of the country. Right. Which presumably would make that person happier and more well-balanced anyway. Yes. Because that seems to be what they want. That's what they're gunning for. That's what they're pushing for. That's where their toxicity is coming from. Exactly. They are trying in some way, shape, or form to make my life worse. Or stepping on you will somehow elevate them. And by banishing them, you're, and you're casting them away from energy that frankly may be toxic to them. Yes. That's and hopefully they, only. they realize that themselves. But if they don't, that's on them. Exactly. What we, what we need to focus on is making sure that our sphere of influence is clear of toxic energies. In some cases, it that involves forcing someone to leave it. Yeah. There are cases, however, in which you can't force someone to leave your sphere of influence or they're just not going to. A hex may be more appropriate. You had defined hexes for me the other day. Yeah. Define hexes as working or spell work directed at a person's behavior, not necessarily the person themselves. Toxic behavior. Gossip is the easiest thing to use as an example. Someone mm-hmm. is bad-mouthing you, whether it's at work or at school or wherever it is. And rather than punishing the person, you are hexing the behavior. So as long as they gossip about you, karma is something that's going to happen. Whether you've termed it to be they get tongue-tied, maybe they get dry mouth, not the dental oral medical dry mouth, but like they suddenly need water in order to continue speaking. Or they get a pebble in their shoe every time they do this until their behavior changes. And then the hex is no longer valid. Once they stop doing that behavior, the hex won't continue. So the hex goes dormant once their behavior changes. And by that definition, a hex is a way to get someone to change behavior that is somehow harmful or makes you distractingly uncomfortable or something of that nature. Yeah, that's how I use hexing and folk magic and folk traditions. And that's how hexes traditionally were used as a form of correction. You are doing this, so until you stop, this is going to happen. And it's not going to reflect badly on me because you're the one who's implementing it by continuing this behavior. Right, exactly. The other ethical question that comes up involving hexing is, do we go right to hexing or do we try to address it directly address the behavior directly with the person or try another avenue. For instance, if you are being bullied or gossiped about at work, do you go to HR first or do you go right to axing? Like when is it appropriate to take that step? I think that's going to depend entirely on the individual circumstance. 
if it's at work, you should probably go to HR whether or not you're going to hex the person or not. So that there's no or in that situation. You need to take care of practical matters. And if there's something that's happening at work, you need a paper trail. And you, that means you need to go to HR in order to deal with it. Right. That means you also feel the necessary action of hexing a behavior as well. Then mm-hmm. by all means, that's something that you feel is necessary. Right. For me personally, almost a last resort, like you've examined the situation and perhaps you've spoken to the person, if you feel comfortable and safe doing so, that's the biggest thing. You may not always feel like you can address the situation without getting some sort of retaliation thrown back at you, especially if they're above you in rank, especially if perhaps they have more seniority than you, or if perhaps it's a family member. Those are the situations in which I feel hexes are the most appropriate because it's it's kind of your only practical it's not your only practical recourse but it is a practical recourse it's something that you can do to make sure that you are safe that that you are protected that you're like correcting this toxic behavior that is is really wearing down on you because having that happen to you is very demeaning it's very diminishing to your spirit mm-hmm. yeah um most of the time anything that is hex worthy is unfortunately seen as something that you should be able to put up with or or address in a different way and sometimes, as you said, that that's not possible, right? There are situations which sometimes addressing the situation, confronting it head on, only makes it worse. Exactly. Now, my personal opinion is that if there is another way to address it, you should try that first. Before we go right into making this person get paper cuts or whatever you decide is appropriate, Um, because they may not be doing it intentionally. They may not realize that it's bothering you as much as it is. I come from a family, as many of us do, where poking fun and teasing and, and that sort of thing is one of the ways that we show affection. And as I've gotten older, I started to realize that that is not part of my love language. That is not something that makes me comfortable. It makes me very uncomfortable, makes me recede into myself. And so it's something that I've had to address with members of my family. I've said, I don't really like this. Please don't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, the behavior has stopped because I addressed it head on and I said, Hey, I don't I don't like this, don't do it. Now, if they had kept doing it, despite my repeated despite my repeated request not to, despite my repeated reminders that I don't like that, mm-hmm. the the magical clause, so to speak, may have come out at that point. Uh I think my approach to hexing is very much what is more work? Mm. Because a hex does involve a great deal of intention setting and and making sure you have all the tools to keep yourself focused on what your intention is. Mm -hmm. And sometimes confronting the person is just easier. That's very true. much work involved as it would be to hex a person. Now, if I feel that the hex would work quicker, better, and be less work for me in the long run, then I'm going to hex then confront the person. Right. So now I'm not going to take into consideration whether or not it's something that I should be doing or is there another way to approach this? I'm taking it from a perspective of what is the most work for me at this point in time and in the long run. 
And I think taking that perspective too will show also if the hex is less work than addressing it head on, then it means that, then I feel like it means that the hex may be warranted because if you feel as though addressing the behavior head on and trying to go through the proper channels is not going to get you the results that you need and perhaps even make the situation worse, that's going to be more work. And so just getting it done through through a magical means is both less work and possibly safer for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are the the qualifications that I tend to use in whether or not a person or a behavior needs to be addressed in one way or the other. Right. Now, when you and I are talking about this, I have to assume that we are talking about hexes that are meant to be non-lethal and not cause any permanent injury or disease or anything along those lines. Yeah, I don't see a lot of hexing, even in the research, that true hexing that is lethal. It's supposed to be uncomfortable and nagging more than it's supposed to be maiming and lethal. So it's irritating more than it is anything. Now, that's not to say that you don't have practitioners who haven't figured out a way to do that. Right. But when we are talking about hexing, we I know I am talking about the irritating, nagging. You know, if you just stop doing A, you wouldn't get a pebble in your shoe. Right. And I would say that from an ethical standpoint, if you stay away from anything that is illegal in the muggle world, so to speak, the mundane world, such as... Mm-hmm causing another physical injury, disease, anything like that, then you're probably okay ethically as well. Yes. Yeah. If you're... Definitely... Go ahead. Your turn. <laughs> I was just going to say there are definitely some some gray areas there, but this is in general. Yes. In general, if you stick a, stay away from the things that we would consider um, illegal in our mundane world, or unethical, obviously, immoral in some way, shape, or form, you're you're usually going to be just causing irritation with a, with a hex, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, so everyone on the podcast, that loud banging is my dog Odin. He's a Siberian Husky with beautiful blue eyes. And he is playing with a very large chunk of wood that used to be part of an old deck of ours. So he's going to be um, serenading us with his with his playing and his antics. Yeah, he's going to be our drummer every now and then. Very nice. You'll hear the bang every now and then. If if we're lucky, a siren will go past in our very urban area, and he will howl at them. Oh, I love it when he howls. Yes. But th- that's the uh, that's what's happening. He's playing music right now. So o- Odin has joined us. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which is very different from a curse because cursing is also a more dangerous method of dealing with someone who is causing you some sort of angst or personal danger or harm. Yeah, uh, a lot of times cursing is seen as a vengeful measure that they will take. Mm-hmm. A curse versus a hex is a curse is something that is permanent until broken. Right. It's not riding on a behavior that you don't like, a toxic behavior that is somehow making you uncomfortable, someone in your family uncomfortable. It's not at the behavior, it's at the person. So it's a personal attack. It is not a behavior. It's not a situational attack. Yeah. And oftentimes, curses are also associated. They can be annoying, benign things like having a pebble in your shoe or getting a paper cut 
when you reach page 316 of a book. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes they're associated with much more dangerous consequences for the person receiving the curse. Yes, there have been public curses laid out. And they're not irritating small curses. They're big curses that, for whatever reason, the person felt justified in doing because of revenge or even a sense of justice. Right. And of course, that brings up all sorts of ethical questions that we don't have the time or the expertise to answer about whether or not revenge is okay, whether or not we're qualified to meet out justice as witches. And again, I, as I said, we're not, we don't have the time or the expertise to address those, but those are some of the questions that come up with things like cursing. Mm -hmm. There's a bigger picture, because when people think of curses, they just think, you curse me with the evil eye or something like that, which can happen. There are unintentional mm -hmm. curses that can be laid down on a person, or you can lay down upon yourself. Exactly. It's a law of attraction and action. Most of the time, the image of a curse being laid down by a practitioner is very intentional, but it's not always intentional. So back in throughout history, someone is giving you the evil eye, and that is a way to lay down a curse. So the evil eye can be very intentional, be laid down by someone staring at you and wishing ill upon you. It will also be accidental and unintentional just by jealousy. If someone is being jealous of you for something that you have and they don't, they give you a negative look because they are in longing or they are in desire, a land of desire that they want something they can't have, they can also end up cursing you with the evil eye. This is interesting. So would you say since they're projecting energy out from themselves and projecting it, reflecting it at you, would you say that curses could be part of white magic or light magic rather than dark and black? Yes, I would definitely say that curses are more likely to be, at least the evil eye is more likely to be a projection, so it would be more likely to be white magic than black magic. Whereas the self-cursing, where you're placing yourself in the victim state or you're activating the law of attraction and putting yourself in a lower vibration, that's more black magic territory. Yeah, that's that, that starts out as black magic territory that you end up projecting to the rest of the world. So it's all a gray area. Curses is definitely a gray area because there is no definition of any one particular type of magic that can be used to lay a curse or to break a curse for that matter. You can use any type of magic to do that. It's almost an instinctual thing that human beings do, which is very unsettling, where they talk about the evil eye, they talk about looks that can kill, if looks could kill, you know? Mm -hmm. Whether it's a curse being laid down upon you by someone else, intentionally, unintentionally, accidentally, or you doing it to yourself, most people will automatically jump to attempting to break a curse by doing magical means, you know? Okay. They will try to go to another witch or a practitioner and say, can you do this and pay for a curse breaking, which but mm -hmm. is probably not the first to be doing. It's more practical to look at your physical body and try to figure out what symptoms are happening with and address it in the mundane world so that way you can almost ricochet back through your ethereal bodies, your you know emotional body, your mental body, your astral body. So mm -hmm. it's, it's coming at you from an astral point and it's gotten to you in the physical where you're actually feeling it, the best thing to do is to make sure you take care of your physical body. Okay. That's very interesting. You can actually break a curse by practicing self-care from the physical body and project that out through the subtle body, the ethereal body, the psychic body, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. The curse is coming at you from the outside in and you need to attack it from the inside out. Okay. So for instance, if you find yourself constantly nauseated at a certain time of day, how would you address that? If you're nauseated at a certain time of day, you need to reevaluate what you're doing at that point in time. Are you eating the same things? Are you eating at the same time? How much are you eating? What are you drinking? What scents are around you at that point in time? If you're at work and you're getting nauseated at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and maybe around 1.50, there's a particular person who comes around with the most nauseating cologne or perfume mm -hmm. that's triggering it. You need to make sure you are not at your seat at 1.50. Right. So you'll if, tell. Yeah, you'll be able to tell what's my environment. What is causing my discomfort? Is it from a curse that is coming from a magical psychic attack? Or is it from an external source where someone is just not aware of how horrible that scent truly is? And could it possibly be 
both could somebody <laughs> yeah. be laying the curse down on you that when you smell Stetson cologne, you'll get nauseated. That's something that you used to love or that's something that maybe, and this is how most of the curses I've interacted with end up happening. There is a person who is extremely jealous that you ended up with the person they wanted, whether it was their mm -hmm. ex or someone they wanted for their current boo, right? Very common and motivation. Happening is that well, you will get nauseated, right? And that will have an effect on you and or the partner you are with. Because if they love that perfume, maybe it reminds them of their grandparents. You know, maybe yeah. it reminds them of a place that they visited a long time ago with a person that they no longer have with them. So curses can have effects that are completely unintentional, but they weave their way. They kind of spread their roots out into parts of your life beyond just the physical effect of them also. That's exactly what it is. A lot of the times, the intent is more or less to cause discomfort and or harm. Mm. whether it's to end a relationship or worse, right? So in the case of the, the cologne that's making the person nauseated because of the curse, by the way that you describe that you should break the curse, would the answer be for the person to stop wearing that particular scent? For a period of time, that is exactly what you, you should end up doing is you signal out what is making you nauseous. You have uh -huh. to avoid that particular scent for a period of time until you've gotten your body back into your control and your balance. In order okay. to get you in a state of being of discomfort, something in your astral, etherical, subtle body had to be askewed in order to reach your physical body inward and figure out what is off balance inside of you and sort of dig that out. Some of the best ways of breaking curses, once you started to realize what the problems are, gone through the, okay, it's this perfume, or I'm getting a pinch in my, my chest. I can't wear this brassiere anymore. I can't wear this corset anymore. I have a pounding feeling in my chest. Let me go to the doctor. Right. You should also be going to see and get rid of the kinks in your subtle body flow better. Absolutely. The other thing that can really help when you're thinking about helping your subtle body is by going to a chiropractor who will help get your spine back into alignment, which is where your chakras live, which is where the energy flows from your tailbone up through the crown of your head to the cosmos. Yeah. In fact, that might be something that you want to do in, a, in tandem with a Reiki master or your Western practitioner. And sometimes they'll have a practice together. Yeah. Another thing you can do will be aromatherapy. Okay. Things mm -hmm. that are very good at breaking negativity in general is rosemary. Yeah, it really is. It's wonderful for that. Another um, really good scent is lavender. I really love lemon too for clearing things out. It will go after negative energy just as the other two will as well. Tea tree. Yeah. That'll knock anything out. Uh, it's also actually extremely powerful. It gets in there and it just it just works over a length of time. It just does its yes. thing. And this is always of breaking the curse without even having to send energy back to the person who's cursed you. Right. Exactly. Especially if you if don't know if it's yourself. Because <laughs> you don't want to. <laughs> but if you happen to have someone who laid a curse on you accidentally by giving you the evil eye out of sheer jealousy, do you really want to cause them the same damage that they were causing you? They didn't do it at all on purpose. And, you know, even if the cursing was intentional, we all have negative stray thoughts. It's just part of being human. Do you really want to get into an energetic battle with someone who has enough malice toward you to do something like that on purpose to begin with? So if you're able to get rid of it and not have to get into it with them and then maybe banish them from your yeah. sphere of influence. <laughs> Very much so. If you can get rid of it without having to engage them or even let them know that it's being taken care of, and that's what mm -hmm. the long making sure that your clothes are fitting you properly or that they're not pinching you, they're not too old, they're not too new, you know, they haven't you haven't broken them in. When we were talking about this before, you mentioned shoes, like making sure the shoes fit your feet. Yep. The crux of all of these magics has to do with the practitioner's intention. Whether or not the result is something that is malicious and harmful or draws out an entity that is malicious and harmful 
or the outcome is healing or drawing prosperity to you or creating a protection spell to help a loved one who's in it. It's all about the person's intention. Black and dark magic as evil magic doesn't really exist. No, it does not whatsoever. Everything is a shade of gray until you throw yourself into the mix and you color the magic. Oh, I like that. You color the magic. Thank you. Sometimes I do have I a ghostly turn of phrase every now and then. More often than you think. Uh, I, I won't claim that. <laughs> I will. <laughs> so that about wraps up everything that we wanted to talk about for this first podcast. We want to thank all of you so, so much for being here. We're so excited to begin this journey with you. And we hope that you will join us next time on November 14th for the next installment. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest to find out more about what we do. If there's anything you would like us to touch upon, talk about in our podcast, or maybe on an article, let us know in the comments on our various sites, and we'll see when and how we can address that. Yes, we're excited to know what you guys think and what you remember i am a librarian that means i thrive on researching and trying to answer questions i may not succeed but i thrive on the trying and she succeeds more often than not because she's amazing at what she does oh thank you i'm still giving myself space for failure that's important because how that's how we learn by failing forward exactly thanks again everyone and we hope that you have a happy halloween and a blessed sawane happy halloween blessed sawane everyone So that about wraps up everything that we wanted to talk about for this first podcast. We want to thank all of you so, so much for being here. We're so excited to begin this journey with you, and we hope that you will join us next time for the next installment. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest to find out more about what we do. If there's anything you would like us to touch upon, talk about in our podcast or maybe on an article, let us know in the comments on our various sites and we'll see when and how we can address that. Yes, we're excited to know what you guys think and what you remember. I am a librarian. That means I thrive on researching and trying to answer questions. I may not succeed, but I thrive on the trying. And she succeeds more often than not because she's amazing at what she does. Oh, thank you. I'm still giving myself space for failure. That's important because how that's how we yep. learn, by failing forward. Exactly. Thanks again, everyone, and we hope that you have a happy Halloween and a blessed Sawane. Happy Halloween, blessed Sawane, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>